Our New Testament lesson is from the Gospel according to St. Mark, the 12th chapter, verses 38 through 44. As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. O Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditation of our heart be always acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It was Monday of the last week of his life. Jesus had entered Jerusalem and he knew that his time was short. These last days before his arrest were crucial. So that day he strode into the temple grounds to challenge hypocrisy and injustice. What he would say would be dangerous talk in Jerusalem and especially in that holy place where the scribes were honored as scholars of the law. The faithful owed them deference. To question them was risky business, but he was not about to be silenced by their status. As Jesus spoke about the vanity and arrogance of the professionally religious, he positioned himself near the metal chute for the deposit of offerings into the temple treasury. The rush of clanging coins going down the tube seemed to serve as sound effects for his commentary. The incoming offerings that supported the lifestyle of the priests and the scribes would have reinforced his reprimand of their kind. He admonished his disciples to heed them, but not to do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. Just at that moment, something seized his attention. He sensed the significance of what he heard and then saw. It was the remarkable offering of one of the poor. Since the days of the King James translation, we have called this vignette from Mark the widow's mite, 
a name that refers to the woman's socioeconomic status and to the small size of the two copper coins. But Jesus recognized her importance and shifted gears to tell his disciples about her. But besides the fact that she was a poor widow down to her last penny and that she freely offered all that she had as a gift to God, we know precious little about her. The widow is cloaked in obscurity. We don't know her name. We don't know the cause of her poverty. We don't know whether or not she lived out on the streets of Jerusalem. And we do not know what happened to her after the incident. She was, and always will be, a shadowy figure, and perhaps that is for the best. Because ultimately, this story is not about personalities, but about God. When she plinked her two copper coins down the metal chute, Jesus' ears picked up to the tiny sound of her offering. Probably no one else heard it. The temple, after all, was a very busy place. The noise generated by crowds of people going to and fro was a steady buzz. Priests and pilgrims, money changers and scribes, and the various animals brought in for ritual sacrifice all contributed to the din. Perhaps only the only sound that rose above this general commotion was the metallic whoosh of large deposits of coins made by the rich into that same tube. Their offerings, reminiscent, I think, of the cascade of coins from a slot machine, would have had people sit up and take note and be impressed. But no one would have heard the puny clink of two small coins given by one of society's underlings. Nobody, that is, except Jesus. He heard it, and he took a hard look at the giver. What he saw startled him. As he marked the significance of the occurrence, Jesus took his disciples aside to make sure that they, they too would get the picture. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow is put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. With those words, the poor widow became, for all of us in later generations, the epitome of the true giver. For many Christians, it has been customary to emphasize her spirit of giving as the virtuous role model for all who would seek to become a true steward of God's gifts. Her offering, when measured against her poverty, is seen as the essence of authentic sacrifice, and it was. Moreover, there are those who highlight the proportion of her giving, 100%, in order to shame all who proudly offer a small slice of income as an appropriate gift to God. But is that the gospel message, finally, that Mark is proclaiming? Did Jesus single her out to raise the bar of Christian generosity? Well, more recently, 
interpreters who are focused on the oppression of the poor, the world around, notice another theme here, one that has usually been overlooked in the rush to praise her as the model of stewardship. The story, they say, highlights a blatant moral travesty. The poor widow's might should be construed as evidence not only of her faithfulness, but also of the terrible injustice perpetrated against her by society, the injustice against all marginalized people by a callous, hypocritical establishment. This interpretation makes sense here. Jesus' reaction to the widow's generosity follows on the heels of his condemnation of the pompous ostentation and pious preening of the privileged. So while the widow gave her all in quiet humility, the scribes and the Pharisees gave little by comparison. What's more, they wore their religion on their sleeve. Actually, they had it draped all over them. For they traipsed around the holy city in flowing robes, whose very length and tailoring bespoke the importance of the wearer's pecking order position. They had the best seats in the synagogues. They enjoyed the admiration of the people who depended on their expertise at interpretation, and they basked in the entitlements that accrued to their special status. But they themselves depended on the generosity of the people who gave of their livelihood to support them in the manner to which they had clearly grown accustomed. Whenever I read this text, I feel rather conspicuous and self-conscious, and so be it. Anyone dressed as I am in vestments who sits where I sit and stands where I now stand can and should take this to heart. We who are professional Christians know what Reinhold Niebuhr meant when he said that prophetic preaching is supposed to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. But those words are not reserved for us alone. Anyone who lives in a position of privilege considers the poor widow and needs to ask, am I more like her or the scribes? The temple, like our world today, was filled with both the afflicted and the comfortable. The invisible poor moved about in the precincts unnoticed, while the rich in the religious hierarchy strutted their stuff for all to see. Perhaps that's why Jesus decided to have his entourage sit down across from the treasury. Maybe he wanted his disciples to take a gander at the difference between the haughty and the humble. The plight of the widow stood out in bold contrast to the largesse of that place. She is both the soul of generosity and the victim in this scene. Her gift of two copper coins worth a penny had cost her her life. Meanwhile, the well-heeled citizenry negotiate the task of contributing to the treasury out of their substantial means and emerged unscathed but proud of their pious accomplishment. Prophetic interpreters of this scene want us to be outraged by the contrasts 
by the injustice of a religious establishment living large by extracting support from the poor. You know, I seriously considered bearing down on this very point today. But I also recalled in that reading another widow related to me by marriage whose livelihood was drained by those who promised her, mostly by television, abundant life in return. She was my great aunt by marriage, a quiet, meek woman and very poor, whose circumstances prevented her from living the American dream. My Aunt Louise tried hard to support herself after her husband's death, but she was barely able to keep body and soul together. One morning long ago, I received a telephone call from my grandmother who informed me that my aunt had perished in a house fire. The electric space heater by which she had tried to keep out the cold winter had shorted out the fragile wiring in her house and it had gone up in smoke and fire. Eventually, I would be called to do the funeral, giving my aunt the final dignity of a Christian burial service. But there was a practical matter that lay before me. I needed to retrieve for her her important papers. So I crossed the yellow police tape and entered the ruined bungalow. I surveyed the awful wreckage, attempting to figure out where she kept her records. I spied a small secretary-type desk. I gingerly tried to pry it open, but it would not budge. It was swollen from water and fire. So I applied a little more leverage and the front of the secretary burst into pieces of charcoal. The shattered opening allowed the contents of the secretary to spill out onto the wet floor in all of that horror. On the soggy floor at my feet lay hundreds, literally, of receipts. They were quite obviously my aunt's prized possession. And they told the tale of her devotion to Christian causes, even denying herself for the sake of others. The receipts were the paper trail of her love offerings sent to support many ministries. It seemed to me they were the widow's might. I had mixed feelings that day about her sacrifice. Undoubtedly, some of the gifts had gone to support people who truly needed help. However, it was equally likely that she had given to some TV personalities that may have resembled the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. The latter prospect made me sad and angry. She had given her all, trusting without question that the causes had integrity. In retrospect, though, I wonder whether my reaction was justified or even on target. Many years have passed since that time. The keen eyes of my youth have matured, and the process of aging has taken the edge off my vision. Experience has taught me that life is more ambiguous than once it seemed to be. My former high-resolution perspective had become a view colored in shades of gray, and that's not all bad. 
the zeal of certainty, can cause a well-intentioned observer to miss important subtleties in a rush to judgment. If it's always my view that is the view, then I am going to have my vision blocked by my own ego. So every so often I'm offered a new pair of prescription lenses that help me see a little better. One of the pairs of spiritual specs that I've tried on belong to Barbara Brown Taylor, a teacher, writer, and priest whose view of what finally matters is so full of light that I am awed by what I see. As I read her comments on today's lesson, I felt as though she graced me with the gift of sight. And I want to share what she has enabled me to see. For Barbara Brown Taylor, this story cannot be reduced to either a stewardship pitch or an ethical argument. Jesus' point is neither to praise the widow nor to demean the generosity of the wealthy, nor to mangle the manipulators of the oppressed. When he calls his disciples' attention to the gift, Jesus was challenging them to detect the divine in the scene. He said it's as if he were saying to them, can you find God in this picture? Can you? If you can, then you will grasp the meaning of the gospel. The clue is contained in the striking difference between what the prosperous offered and what she offered. It is found in the yawning chasm of disproportion between the riches and power, their riches and power, and her poverty and powerlessness. Their relative ease of giving and the costliness of hers, their pseudo-sacrifice and her total forfeiture. In short, Jesus wants them to recognize the widow herself as a revelation from God. Her amazing graciousness provided, in Barbara Brown Taylor's words, the last of his dizzy lessons in the upside-down kingdom of God, where the last shall be first and the great shall be servants of all, and the most unlikely people turn out to have been Christ himself in disguise. The poor widow in his last, in the poor widow in this last case, is his point to make to his people finally. When he leaves the temple with his disciples that very day, his public ministry is over. In four days he will be dead, having uncurled his fingers from around his own offering to give up the two copper coins of his life. That is why he noticed the poor widow in the first place. She reminded him of someone. It was the end for her. It was the end for him. She gave her living to a corrupt church. He was about to give his life for a corrupt world. She withheld nothing from God. Neither did he. It took one to know one. 
When he looked at her, it was like looking in a mirror at a reflection so clear that he called his disciples over to see. Look, he said, look at her. That is what I have been talking about all along. Look at her. And that, I believe, is the message for today. He wants us to see her as the embodiment of good news in a snapshot of human life. She is the assurance that God is fully committed to the work of transforming the shadow of death into the morning. As we look at the life we are living, as well as that of our neighbors, our task is to locate the redemptive presence of God within it, of Christ in the mundane mix. He challenges us to evaluate whom we see as well as what is going on through this godly lens. Now when I think of my late aunt and her priorities, I'm called to recognize the loving intention by which she gave away all that she had. When you and I contemplate this confusing world, what he asks of us is to look for the activity of God in small things, in the unlikely people, including the likes of you and me. The gift of the whole self is the sign that God is indeed with us, persuading us to accept his vision for our life. For where love is, there God is. The God who loves us without reservation. The God who loves us wholeheartedly. You know, every so often we catch glimpses of that astonishing type of love. The soldier who leaps onto a live enemy grenade to save the members of his platoon. The veteran sheriff sergeant who rushes into the nightclub alone toward the source of hostile gunfire. The firemen who rush up the stairwells of the World Trade Center to help those trapped above in the flames. The person who donates a kidney to be received by someone she does not as yet know. The volunteer who continues to show up and lean in to a challenge that seems insurmountable. The father who is paralyzed and on life support and who coaches his son nevertheless to earn an Eagle Scout Award, each word of his support costing him precious breath. The person who hears Christ's call to feed the hungry, to heal the sick, to visit the imprisoned, and clothe the naked, and goes and does just that. If we pay attention and look carefully at the story of our life, we will see enough of these glimpses to persuade us that self-giving love is not only real, and redemptive. It is of God. That is why the poor widow, one of Judea's have-nots, was the one that Jesus commended. It was as if he were saying, if you want to be my disciples, follow her lead. For he could see that she understood the heart of the matter. 
She knew that God's kind of love requires much of us who would answer his call to seek and serve Christ, loving our neighbor as ourself. The widow heard the call, and she went all in. She gave it all for the sake of others. Jesus himself was about to do the very same in an act of pure, unbounded love for you and me. Wholehearted love, then, is the standard. It may be the impossible possibility, but it remains our goal. Our task is to try and to seek God's grace to redeem our failings and to complete what we cannot complete on our own. My friends, such is our trust and our final hope. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.